a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 85 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan. Also, if you would rate or review the show on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. And if you like the show, retweets and shares are greatly appreciated and help the show to grow. You can probably hear in my voice that I'm a little bit under the weather, and the reason for that is because last weekend I made my gymnastics debut and did about nine hours of gymnastics broadcasting in a day and a half, and... Since then, I've had a busy basketball game schedule and have never really been able to allow my voice to recover. But we're going to get through this nonetheless. And I do want to tell the story of that gymnastics coverage debut because I can barely touch my own toes and personally know very little about the sport of gymnastics, but I was really pumped up for the opportunity. It's exactly the type of thing I hoped I would get a chance to do by moving to a big market. I went into the broadcast really just hoping not to mess anything up. And there were definitely some bumps in the road, but this assignment reminded me why I love this business. Because you never know when you'll be on the call for something historic or something that's never happened before. In my case, I was covering the vault apparatus. We had a four-camera shoot, one person on each apparatus. You could tune in to whichever feed you wanted, and I was on the vault. And one of the competitors on the vault scored the first perfect 10 in the 45-year history of the state meet in Minnesota. I had to move on quickly from trying not to screw up to capturing a huge moment in the sport, and I think I did pretty well mostly just by shutting up and letting my analyst run with it. He had a ton of passion. He had recognized what he saw immediately, and I just got out of the way. The call went a little bit viral in the gymnastics community, but all the same, I was pretty proud of making that call on the very first time I had ever covered the sport. It was a really cool experience, and I'm glad I got an opportunity to try it. This week, I'm happy to be chatting with Bill Spaulding. He's a former Jim Nance Award winner who calls games for Harvard, the Ivy League Network, and has worked as part of NBC's Olympic coverage. We actually got connected because when I was writing articles about working at Home Depot to support my sportscasting addiction, he also used to do that. He's since moved past that, but he used to work in the lumber department at a Home Depot in Boston. And we talk about that and more in the podcast today. So, Bill, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Logan. You know, I've talked to one other person about broadcasting for an Ivy League school, and one of the things I I wondered when I talked to him was, do you feel pressure to sound smarter knowing that your audience is probably very intelligent i don't feel that pressure directly i think honestly it's it's a great uh asset because the athletes that you talk with are all so intelligent and so well-spoken and 
you get a lot more really interesting nuggets, I feel like, with them than maybe your average athlete. Um, so if anything, it leads to even better stories. And all these all these Ivy athletes are so involved in, you know, 18 different things, be it academics, like civics, uh, community act- activism, all that kind of stuff, uh, that you, you just get more interesting people to talk about. And that, that's a lot of fun. Any examples of specific stories that an athlete told you that stand out? Yeah, well, I mean, the Harvard basketball team uh, led by Tommy Emmaker, uh, they've 100% embraced that role. Uh, um, in, in the last couple of years, Tommy Emmaker has brought in um, Arnie Duncan, who's the former Secretary of Education, who also played basketball at Harvard. Uh, Charlie Baker's governor of Massachusetts. He's also a Harvard basketball alum. They were down in Atlanta a couple weeks ago for an uh, event in, uh, or game, two games in Georgia, and uh, they met Jimmy Carter. They went to church at Jimmy Carter's church, met him afterwards, and they went to uh, the Martin Luther King Museum. So they're a team that always really gets out there and, and makes sure that it's about more than just basketball. But, I mean, week in, week out, I find crazy – interesting things. Uh, I've done Ivy football for a couple of years, and uh, last season, Princeton's senior quarterback, uh, it was his final semester at school, which at Princeton means you write your 50-page thesis, uh, and so he was working on his thesis during football season, and he was, you know, like writing a thesis on uh, cybersecurity and how it interacts with elections. So, you know, like, there's a guy who is worried about making sure he has the playbook down for his game against Harvard, but also uh, spending, you know, 40, 50 hours a week on his project that he needs to graduate from Princeton. Interesting. So one of the things I like to use as a jumping off point pretty frequently on this show is I ask people when they knew they wanted to make sports casting a career. And I'm just going to start that broad stroke. What is the, the point in your life where you knew that this was what you wanted to do? So I think like most sports broadcasters, I was a a failed athlete. Uh, I always thought, oh, I want to play Major League Baseball someday. And then when I'm done, I would love to be a broadcaster afterwards. Uh, But knowing that um, I never threw harder than like 75 miles an hour and uh, was a contact hitter, but not a great power hitter. I think by the time I was in high school, I kind of realized that um, I... There was going to need to be a plan A that did not involve playing professional baseball. Um, and the sports casting fit in perfectly uh, because it was something I'd always hoped to get into eventually anyway. Um, you know, and from a young age, I knew it was something I was interested in. I would go with my dad to games at the uh, Carrier Dome. He grew up in Syracuse. I grew up about an hour and a half away. And I'd watch the field, but I'd also like look up to the radio booths and where the commentators were and things like that and think, oh, I want to I want to be there someday. I want to do that. Um, and if you ask uh, parents of my older sister's travel softball team, they'd probably tell you they had a good idea from the time I was three or four because I'd be the one reciting the stats and knowing, oh, yeah, three tournaments ago when we were in Saratoga Springs, New York, this travel team beat that travel team by eight points. You know, uh, so I guess I always kind of had the mind for it. And uh, it just took realizing that I was not going to be the next, uh, you know, at the time, Alex Rodriguez or something like that, that uh, pushed me in the right direction. You never considered taking the, the real Alex Rodriguez route <laughs> and roiding up to try to get better, did you? Hey, even, even if I had done that, there's no way I would, uh, would have been, uh, I would have needed uh, something a little bit stronger than uh, human growth hormone, I think. So you decided to go to Syracuse out of high school, I believe. Yep. Uh, We've talked with a lot of Syracuse people. You really can't talk with the who's who's of this business without doing it. Uh, what was the the decision making process behind that? Uh, for me, it was it was easy because I grew up, 
you know, basically on that campus. Uh, again, my dad's from there. I have family that still lives there. So I was born and bred Syracuse fan. Um, and it just so happened to work out that it was also this, this school you want to go to for what I wanted to do. So I knew from a very early stage I wanted to go to Syracuse. I applied early decision there. I only ended up actually applying to two other colleges. I applied to Maryland and I applied to Missouri. Um, but by December of my senior year I was in, I knew I was going there. Um, you know, I, I really couldn't, even though I love the campus at Maryland and I thought Missouri was really cool, uh, I couldn't see myself anywhere else uh, just, I think, because it was part of me from – when I was so little, I have early memories of, you know, Donovan McNabb throwing touchdown passes and things like that, uh, that, that had it kind of in my, in my blood from a very young age. So we've talked with several other people, as mentioned, about kind of the experience of working at WAER and the curriculum. But what I've never asked anybody about is how difficult is it to get into the Newhouse program? Is it pretty competitive or is it, if you have an interest and, a uh, pretty good GPA you can get in. What's the process? So they tell you that it's harder to get into than Harvard. Uh, now, I don't know if that's true. On a, on a percentage rate rating, it is like an 8% acceptance rate. But I don't think we have, and throwing myself into this group, I'm, I'm, I don't think we have uh, the same type of applicant pool maybe as kids who are applying to be uh, biomechanical engineers at MIT applying for the Newhouse School. Uh, but but I, I think it is rather challenging to get into because they just get so many applicants with their uh, their sterling reputation. That being said, I, I know a bunch of people who went the route of they didn't get into Newhouse right away. They went to, to Syracuse, enrolled in another program. And if you do well there, you're able to transfer in as well. And on top of that, the uh, the extracurricular uh, side of things at Syracuse also is is huge and it's open to whoever you don't have to be a new house student to go to WAER so one of the kids that I did a lot of games with during my time at Syracuse and he's still now in the field he was never in the new house school he just immersed himself in WAER and in the student TV station and uh you know got his reps that way and, and I think those are the, val- the most valuable reps that you you get in your time at school they're the actual uh, you know, stretches you have of calling games or the actual hosting you do in the TV studio more so than the the classes you take uh, in the actual classroom. Do you know what on your uh, resume and portfolio leading up to being accepted, what stood out that allowed you to get in over the competition? If you say only 8% of the applicant pool is getting accepted. Uh, so I think, it was a number of things. I think I was fortunate that my, my grades were really good um, and my test scores were good. Um, but I also uh, was involved in some extracurriculars, including some, uh, you know, communications minded extracurriculars. While I was in high school, I wrote uh, as part of a youth editorial board for the local newspaper, the Elmira Star Gazette. So I'd write an article or two a month that would show up there. Uh, I think the ones that got the, the most push or the most uh Feedback. I don't know if it was all pushback, but most feedback involved. I was writing uh, at the time of, you know, the is Barry Bonds or is Mark McGuire a Hall of Famer? And I actually wrote that, yes, I thought they should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, I also wrote uh, another article, not at all in the sports realm, but that had a lot of uh, uh, pushback at the time that was on a uh, campaign finance reform. But uh, those are a couple of things that I think helped uh, helped raise the attention of uh, the folks uh, who were who were looking. I also made sure to go do an in-person interview, which I hope helped. Um, and uh, 
this is obnoxious, but I was told you want to do whatever you can to, to separate yourself from the field. I sent my application in in uh, orange typed. It was typed in orange instead of black. So I, I hope that that was something that would stand out as well. <laughs> oh, that is pretty funny. And, again, I don't – it's not a shot at Syracuse or anything. I've just talked a lot about uh, yeah. about the, the school with a lot of other people. And you have a yeah. lot of other interesting parts of your career yeah. that I want to move on to. But the one thing I like to ask every Syracuse person, because I'm told that this is the case, everybody has a Bayheim story. What's yours? So I got lucky that I don't have, like, uh, that I got totally yelled at or totally embarrassed at a press conference. I think the closest that came uh, for me was my, my junior year. Uh, Syracuse won a game at Louisville, and they won it on like a 19-foot jump shot by the big center, Fab Mello, who I don't think had made a shot outside of about uh, four or five feet all year. And, you know, I asked Bayheim a question about him making that jump shot and him, uh, him uh, you know, then making two free throws after that. And he's like, he told me, he's like, I wish he'd miss because now he's just going to take this shot all year long, think he can make it, yada, yada, yada. And he kind of gave me this weird look that I'd even asked him about him making a jump shot. My year, my couple of years in the really covering Syracuse basketball were a little bit different in regard to most student media members, partially because my, my junior year was the year where Syracuse had the, um, the story about their assistant coach, Bernie Fine, which led to a lot of the national media being there for a long time. So it was a much more crowded press room that year than than most years, for sure. So your junior year, I believe, you won the Jim Nance Award for the best collegiate sportscaster. And, you know, I've had two of the other Nance Awards on this – two of the other Nance Award winners on this show. And – their stories have always been interesting. Did you get to meet Jim Nance, and when and how did it happen? I, I did. Uh, so the first time we tried to meet, it, it didn't work out because he, he was coming into Buffalo to do a football game, but I was going to be uh, in New York City for a Syracuse football game. So we missed then, but uh, it ended up working out that my senior year, Syracuse went to the Final Four for basketball. So he was there calling the Final Four. He actually called me the week before that to, to get – my inside info on what I knew about Syracuse. We called and he was asking me questions about all the players and their strengths and weaknesses. So that was really cool that I was getting to give Jim Nance a, a scouting report uh, before his final four broadcast. And then uh, I met with him on the, on the floor, you know, he took pictures, things like that before the first game of uh, that 2013 final four down in Atlanta. Uh, I've exchanged emails with him. I try to update him every, you know, six months or a year. I think he likes to know what, we're all up to, and uh, it's, it's nice to nice to exchange a note every once in a while, get a little bit of feedback from him, but, but that was a really cool experience. Going through the Nance Award process, at what point did you have a pretty good idea that you had a chance to, to come away with the win? I don't know if I ever knew that I was going to win or had a good idea that I would win. I was confident in the material that I sent, and part of that is that you know you, you get – really good opportunities to call games that just sound big when you're, when you're at Syracuse. So I, I'm the first to admit that some of that is luck. I, I mean, I had on my tape NCAA tournament basketball, NCAA tournament lacrosse, things like that, which, which I think have to, have to help. Um, you, you know, I, once we got through and we were sitting there and watching, um, and I saw a bunch of my friends end up in, you know, the top 20, the, the top 10, the top five, and we got to the final couple, I guess I felt like, 
well, I'm either going to win this thing or nothing at all. So I think I had a decent feeling that I had a good chance, but it wasn't really until I heard uh, when it got to the point that uh, there were two left and John was going to announce the winner. And he said, this guy also from Syracuse. And at that point, I feel like every single other Syracuse broadcaster that I knew had already been on that list somewhere. So I realized process of elimination. I think, uh, I think it's going to be me, but no, I, I felt confident with what I sent in, but I mean, there's so many good broadcasters out there. I certainly was not, uh, not expecting to win. And correct me if I have my facts wrong here, but you were number one. Number two was John Nolan from Syracuse, now the voice of the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, and you guys were roommates. Yeah, yeah, we were roommates. Uh, we lived together uh, junior and senior year. Uh, he was in my wedding, uh, and I still talk to John a lot. So that, that was great. It was really fun to uh, have both of us there, and I think there might have been three other classmates of mine that were in the top ten. So that, that to me, was really rewarding to see um, all of our hard work pay off because my – year at Syracuse was actually, it was a very unique um, situation at WAER. There were only two seniors in the class ahead of us. So the class of 2012 only had two seniors at WAER, which meant that when we were juniors and you're usually not yet in a leadership role there, we were all kind of thrust into the leadership role, which was great for all of us. It gave us an extra chance to um, do more games than the average student gets to do coming through Syracuse, but it, it definitely put a lot on our plate right from uh, lacrosse season, our sophomore years. Uh, so to see how we'd all kind of pulled together and uh, kept the product where it is expected to be, even though we were coming in a year earlier than than most, uh, we, I was really proud to see how everybody had come together and produced good content. So did you keep your award in a spot where you knew John could see it every day when he when he came back? <laughs> uh. I de- definitely did not, but uh, I, I actually, I think my, my when I was in college, you know, you know how those college houses are. Yeah, there's people walking in and out and uh, everything because I, we had four roommates, and I, was, I only was really, I knew three of them beforehand. The other one was a friend of a friend who ended up living with us, so there are people coming in and out. I think I kept my award at my parents' house while I was still in college just to make sure it was uh, it was safe. Uh, so, so no, but, but uh, John would have been a good sport about it if I had done something like that. You know, having somebody like that so close in your life that you're seeing every day who is also in the field and has a similar level of talent, how did that help to push you uh, to continue to get better as a young broadcaster? So to me, you just summed up in a nutshell the, the most valuable part of going to Syracuse. It's that um, there are so many kids there that all have the same goal and all have the same passion, and there's only so many games uh, that you can call uh, that you're pushed to be really good, and you're guided from a young age. So you may not be on the air calling Syracuse basketball as a freshman, but if you're trying to make an effort to eventually do that, you're, you're calling games – and you're getting them critiqued by the upperclassmen who are doing those games. Uh, and you have access to the network of alumni who will also critique uh, all of your work. So I think the fact that we were such a, a big and talented group, and that's the norm at Syracuse, I think that's why you see broadcasters come out and seem broadcast ready. It's because uh, you're getting guided, purposeful feedback from a young age. And at that age, the feedback is so valuable because you should be improving leaps and bounds between broadcasts when you're that young and just starting out. Plus, you realized if you slacked off and sat back at all, that somebody else was there to, to come up and take your spot. So I think that's a good, um, a, a really good training ground for the 
the real professional world, because as you know, if you don't work on your craft to, to get better, you're getting worse. And there are other people who are getting better that'll come right in and, and happily get the opportunities that you're already working with. So after college, you ended up in Boston. How? So Boston by way of Dayton, Ohio. I was in uh, in Dayton for the first eight months of graduation or seven months of graduation uh, uh, doing minor league baseball at the Dayton Dragons. Awesome organization. Uh, Tom Nichols, who was the um, lead uh, play-by-play there, still is and has been in minor league baseball for better part of three decades at this point, was, was a really good uh, mentor to learn from. Uh, that organization runs like a well-oiled machine. So uh, So that was an awesome experience to learn. Uh, and, and to really grow as a broadcaster and also be out on my own. Um, I was engaged at that point, actually, but my wife had, was just wrapping up her master's degree in, in PR at Syracuse, and she had an internship in Boston. She's, she's from this area. So she went to Boston. I went to Dayton. Um, we, we got married that summer. So I was off for three days from Dayton, but we were hosting the minor league all-star game. So I had to get back. There was a very, very short honeymoon. Um, but when the year ended, you know, I, I evaluated opportunities and, you know, there was potential to move a couple other places and get some work. But I knew I also had a couple of opportunities in Boston if I moved that way that, um, including Harvard uh, at the time, which was the most notable there and, my wife already had a job because her internship had gone well. They were going to hire her full time. So it was one of those things where it was like, you know, uh, there are a couple places to choose from, but my choice was made pretty easy when I realized that we already had the other half of the equation, my wife's job figured out. Um, and I knew that if I got to a big city like Boston, I could start with something and scramble and get more and more and more, uh, which is what, what ended up happening. But but to make a long story short, that that's kind of how like my wife was there in a good situation with a good job, and uh, there was enough for me to do that it, it made sense. And this is how we originally got connected, because yeah. while you were in Boston, you also worked as the lumber opener at Home Depot yeah. there, and you uh, reached out to me with, during my stretch working at Home Depot, opening up the flooring department. So Yeah, um, yeah that was my, my, first, uh, my first job, uh, along with doing games at Harvard uh, and doing games at a Division three school called UMass Boston. I, I worked at Home Depot for probably about seven, seven months. Uh, you know, on a part-time schedule, I was there usually like 20 hours a week and generally uh, generally in the mornings. I uh, worked with a 75-year-old man who had been working there forever who knew everything you would ever know about uh, lumber, <laughs> roofing, flooring, which was great because my, my job then basically became if someone asked me, uh, hey, uh, you know, I've got a leak in my roof and my flashing is exposed. And if I didn't know the answer, I, my, my job became, hey uh, – my coworker over here, he, he's been here forever. Let me film it on the situation, and, and, he, and he can tell you exactly uh, exactly what you need to know. Uh, I got pretty good with a table saw, uh, you know, cutting uh, cutting our, our two by fours and our three by fours down to, to the right size for whatever the customer needed, uh, and, and you know that was a very valuable experience because uh, you know first off it helped me pay the bills, but but secondly, uh, you, you learn a lot in customer service. You you really do, and, and you learn how to interact with people in all different situations. Um, and then thirdly, uh, you know, I learned some stuff that has helped when it, when it comes to, you know, taking care of my own house now that I, I, I would not at all have considered myself a handy person before I started working at Home Depot. And now I would say I'm at least uh, moderately handy. 
So my biggest takeaway from my time there is you can deal with any negative feedback once you've dealt with someone who put in a floor and had it uh, completely ruined or someone installed it wrong. What was your your customer service horror story that you can share? You know, I think working in the lumber department, I was a little bit more lucky than some of the other departments because for the most part, we were working with the same group of contractors who would come in. And at least the times that I was there and the weekday mornings, they'd come in 6, 7 a.m. They know what they're looking for. They'd get their big batch orders. And the most they'd ever need from me was to cut something, you know, to 32 inches or this, that or the other thing. I would say the majority of uh, the majority of the customer service, quote unquote, nightmares that I would have would have revolved around that that table saw, because from time to time, especially when I was getting comfortable with it at the beginning, if you cut a measurement just slightly off, that could ruin the uh, the entire uh, entire procedure. Um, so, so that that was something that I definitely at the beginning took a little bit of time, make sure I had orders just right for people and things like that. Um, but no, the, my coworkers there were great. Uh, they were all very interested in what else I did. So I would spend a lot of time talking talking sports with them. I'm sure you had a a similar experience. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was. Great. I worked there seven months, then spent the next two years with a part-time job doing uh, media relations for MIT's Sloan School of Management, which was also a really awesome experience um, until I finally felt like I had enough of a firm footing to to be a full-time broadcaster. Well, since we're talking about lumber and using a table saw and tools, <laughs> uh, I was directed towards a video of you in a hard hat and hammer on YouTube. Oh, okay. Defend yourself. Okay. So that was part of Syracuse University's Citrus TV, uh, the student TV station. They had a show called Cuse Countdown, uh, and I think that would have been like my sophomore year. And each week that show was a show that previewed the upcoming either basketball or football game. I think I think that particular episode was basketball. Uh, and there was a segment that from time to time they'd work in, uh, the very creative producers on that team, I think led at the time by a guy named Scott Grodsky, who's now a, a sports reporter in uh, in Milwaukee. Uh, they had a segment called Countdown Construction. So the idea was we were constructing or deconstructing a couple of plays that you'd see on uh, – on the screen and we break down what went right or what went wrong. But of course, if you're working construction, it's dangerous. You got to wear the hard hats. So, uh, the hard hats and the hammers came out. I didn't actually find that. I was told by Chris Lewis to ask you that. So just, uh, you know so who to Chris, blame. Chris was also a producer on that, uh, on that show. So that's probably why he brought it up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You, you can, uh, you can find pictures on my Facebook, I believe. Perfect. So let's get back to your actually to your actual career. We've uh, sidetracked enough here for a little while. So once you got to Boston, you mentioned that pretty much right away you were able to pick up some work with Harvard. What connection and what process made that possible? So while I was still in Dayton, knowing that at some point there was going to be a finite end on minor league baseball season and that I wanted to get back into working college sports, I literally compiled a document, I think starting in April, where I just went from uh, athletic department website to athletic department website, one by one, every division one athletic department in the country. And I found, okay, do they have like a TV or multimedia department? If they do, I put the director's name and email address down. If not, I looked at the, uh, you know, the chief athletic communications person. And then on, for some schools, I would also put their director of external operations because you'd read the bios and you could see who is in control when it comes to, to their broadcast opportunities. So I think over the course of a couple of months, I, I must have sent 
you know, five or 600 cold emails to basically every division one institution in America and a number of division three institutions in areas that I thought would be more desirable to live in. Um, and Harvard was one of the places that happened to get back to me. You know, you probably, I probably had a 10% success rate on schools that actually got back to me, but Harvard was one of them. Uh, at the time, uh, a guy who's still uh, in charge there at Harvard named Imri Halevi had just taken over the, uh, the multimedia department and uh, the school and the league were throwing a lot of resources into it. So he was really looking to build up a crew and a staff and was looking for people in a, in a situation like me, like younger broadcasters that weren't going to to break the bank. Um, and it, it worked out perfectly that I knew there would be some games there. And then, you know, once I at least had that footing, uh, knowing that uh, my wife had a job and I would find part-time work, I knew that gave me a, a base to start to really grind from because then uh, at least I was in an area where I'd meet other people and could start to expand my circle out from, from there. It's time to take a short break and talk about STAA. To me personally, STAA is like the ultimate set of tools for a broadcasting career. They provide tools to grow and develop your on-air sound and to help you simply sound better on the air. They also have tools to network and build relationships, tools to help make you stand out with employers, and tools to find job openings as soon as they open all across the country. I know a lot of people think, why should I sign up and if it's really worth it? I was one of those people for over a year before I took the leap and it's been critical to my growth in the profession. You know the jobs posted on the STAA job board? You may not know that A, you see them faster as a member and some of them are filled so quickly that they never even make it to the board. So you may never see a job opening if you're not a member. They also provide a free monthly group critique service which is an incredible resource to get better at your craft by having your work listened to and by being able to fix your own mistakes by listening to others. And most importantly, anytime you have a question, no matter how seemingly small, John Chalesnik will answer in a thoughtful and truthful manner. He tells you what you need to hear, even if it's not what you necessarily want to hear at that time. I've partnered with STAA to provide you this special offer. Join STAA by April 30th, 2019, and get a free month added to your membership. That's a $30 value free if you sign up for STAA through staatalent.com slash say the damn score. There's a link to that site in the show notes, and anytime you sign up through staatalent.com slash say the damn score, you support the show as I receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. So get a free month of STAA if you join by April 30th, 2019 by visiting staatalent.com slash say the damn score. Now back to the show. How did your circle expand from there? Uh, I mean, the number one thing is just never saying no to any opportunity. I mean, I learned that at Harvard right off the bat. Harvard, outside of Ohio State, has the most sports in the country. So, you know, in that first year I called water polo, fencing, track, uh, volleyball, wrestling, on top of sports like hockey and basketball. Uh, um, so so when other sports needed people in those situations, uh, I think they would reach out to Emory and say, like, okay, who's done this for you? And I had d- done it, uh, so I'd get connected that way. Um, I did some games for free for Northeastern University my first year, which built relationships there, eventually leading to paid work with them. And then, you know, the more games you do in one area, the more other schools from the region play those teams over and over again. And their people hear your work and, uh, 
things like that. So, so your name just, if you do a good job, your reputation builds, your name, um, you know, starts to get around, particularly because there is so much crossover in collegiate sports uh, in a region. So, you know, athletics communications people or multimedia people at one school know the people at the school down the street or the school in the next town or the next state as well. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, I was still being uh, diligent about if I didn't have a direct connection, making sure I reached out to people who I knew would be in those types of roles that would be looking to hire talent for schools. So uh, a mixture of saying yes to everything, grinding, uh, you know, just doing a good job to get your name passed around and then making the effort to uh, create opportunities that weren't already there. So eventually the your path over just a couple years led you to Rio to cover the Olympics and coming from, you know, graduating from Syracuse probably was three years later was 2016. That was when uh, the Rio Olympics happened. How did you find the connection that got you involved there? Yeah. uh, So it, it, it's a story that all stems back to uh, Yomi Yori Giants baseball games at 1am on Tuesday nights in the summer. Um, But I, so I, I was doing games for a network called One World Sports down in Stamford, Connecticut, uh, which is also the home of NBC. Uh, One World Sports, which no longer exists, uh, had a lot of U.S. rights for international broadcasts, including the Yomiuri Giants, uh, the KHL, the, the Russian Hockey League, and uh, the Chinese Basketball Association. So uh, I did a couple of KHL games, a couple of uh, Yomiuri Giants games, and they liked me there to the point where by the year 2015 into 2016 season, I think I probably called 50 Chinese Basketball Association games, including the Chinese Basketball Association finals uh, for that network. And I also called a lot of KHL and KHL playoffs. So I, in March of 2016, I was in Stamford, Connecticut for, I think, 20 of the 31 days that month, uh, just because of playoffs and things. I was staying at a, a hotel there, and uh, I reached out to – someone at NBC who was a a Syracuse alum that was in their talent department and said, Hey, I'm Bill Spaulding, uh, 2013 Q's grad, uh, doing a lot of work down in Stanford right now for this network. I'd love to grab a coffee with you sometime and, uh, you know, get together. Here's my reel. If you have any feedback and ended up leading to a meeting with her, she and one of her coworkers, met me, liked my reel, what they saw, like that I had done at that point, probably 15 or 16 different sports, which uh, uh, was valuable. And like, hey, we're going to pass this along to people. We'll let you know if anything comes of it. And it was probably a month and a half later, like late April, early May, that I was uh, driving in my uh, my car on the highway. And I got a phone call from uh, Rebecca Chapman, who's uh, the lead coordinating producer for uh, NBC Olympics, hires all the talent, and said she had a role for me in Rio, and I nearly drove the car off the road. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was great. I, I was in Stamford for the Olympics, but uh, working, working on the Rio games. Uh, at this point, NBC is staffed up its Stamford area to where there are so many great broadcast facilities there that a good chunk of the the folks were in Stamford. Um, but it was a great experience. I called um, judo, which was, was a lot of fun. I called some shooting. I called modern pentathlon. I called the 20-kilometer race walk. And then for their 4K Ultra HD broadcast, I also called the track and field and the gold medal soccer game. Uh, so that was a blast. Loved it. Met some great people and then just kind of kept the relationships up from there so that once they launched the uh, the Olympic Channel, which is a uh, NBC owned property as well, and now does a ton of Olympic broadcasts, 
Uh, I think it made me a logical fit with the amount of sports I've done to uh, to work for that network as well. So it's led to two years of calling uh, ski jumping uh, during the World Cup season. I probably call 30 to 40 ski jumping events a year, and uh, it's led to some other opportunities and led to a, a role in the Winter Olympics. And uh, we'll see uh, we'll see what else down the road. I've done 26 different sports at this point now, so uh, happy to always keep adding to that list. When you're calling a game remotely on a monitor, yep. what is the most challenging part of that? How do you get your energy at the level that it needs to be for the Olympics without any crowd or anybody else in the room? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to making sure that you pump the nap mix in your ear as much as possible. So, like, uh, it does it does take a little bit of getting used to, and I was fortunate that all of those games I'd done for One World Sports got me really comfortable with um, with doing games off a monitor. But I, whenever I'm in a booth doing a game remotely, I um, make sure that I put the, the crowd mix, the natural sound mix, up pretty high in my ears, uh, and then you just got to get that tunnel vision. You, you lock in on the monitor, your notes, and the noise that you hear in your ear, and, and you can fake it. You can fake yourself into feeling like you're there. I think that's the most important thing. You, you have to realize that you need to make sure that you are giving the energy like you were there because it's very easy to uh, think you're giving energy because you're sitting in a little booth and all of a sudden you listen back and realize you didn't have that ample energy. But you've got you've to fool yourself into believing that you're at that game. Um, and then the other key is obviously just following the monitor. Don't, don't, uh, speculate on things that you can't see, uh, speak to what, what you see in the monitor, speak to what you know, and that'll keep you from getting yourself in any type of trouble when you're on the monitor. Covering a sport like judo or did you say it was run walking? Uh, race walking, race yes. walking. Yes, that's yes. that's the term I was looking for. <laughs> I'm assuming you don't have experience outside of having walked before in race walking <laughs> or or judo. How do you prepare for a sport that you're completely unfamiliar with? Uh, there are a couple things that you need to do right off the bat. The very first thing I generally try to do is read the rule book because. Um, you know, once you have a grasp of the rules, it's easier to start to understand. Um, so I would say that for any sport, even if you think you know football or know basketball or anything, read the rule book at the level that you're broadcasting because there are little intricacies that you need to know. And the, the best broadcasters know every rule. Like Mike Tirico could recite to you the paragraph, the page, and the addendum number of every rule that he has to discuss during the uh, course of an NFL broadcast because he's read the rule book that well. Um, second thing I'd try to do is watch as much of uh, that sport as I can. So before the, the uh, Rio games, I knew I was doing judo. I went on YouTube and I watched like, you know, maybe five or six hours worth of judo coverage from the International Judo Federation and tried to listen to how the guy who does it for a living for the International Judo Federation at least pick up some terms from him. Not that you want to copy him, but at least I could get an idea of the terms and what's important, what to spotlight. Um, you know, the, the third thing, you, you talk to your analyst and advance as much as possible because they're the expert who's done the sport, so they can really help educate you. I worked with a guy named Leo White, who was a 1984 Ameri uh, American Olympian in judo, and he, uh, you know, he helped explain moves, holds, rules, everything to me. The only issue is he, when I would ask him a question about, okay, like what's this move or that, he would demonstrate it on me. So, uh, so that, that wasn't great. I was getting thrown around by a, by a former, uh, former Olympic judoka, but, uh, but no, that's, that's so helpful is to, to build and lean on your analyst in those roles. And then fourthly, I would say that the last thing for a sport like that is 
know your lane as the play-by-play guy. Like you, at the end of the day, are not asked to be the expert for this broadcast. So set your analyst up to be the expert, but you stick with the basics of the sport. And then, you know, for an Olympic sport particularly, your job is to tell tell stories because that's why people watch the Olympics. People watch the Olympics because they want to learn about these athletes and sports that they don't see. And, you know, everybody wants the story like I was able to have in judo of, uh, the woman from Brazil who grew up in a Rio favela got strong by carrying 10 pound gas tanks up the hill to her mom's shop where she sold gas and then became the first Brazilian woman to win a gold medal at the Rio games uh, in her hometown in front of a crowd like that. So your job as the, as the play-by-play person in sport like that is to, to be well-versed on the stories and let your expert really roll and explain the, the sport in a way that people understand. When you're looking for stories on a sport like that where uh, many times there's going to be a language barrier, do you go directly to the athletes? Do the athletes have handlers? Do you just rely on what's available online? What are your tricks for finding those type of uh, stories? There's a mix. So the the bulk of it's going to come online, um, and Google Translate becomes your friend. Uh, but NBC is a great research team as well, so, you know, they – they send researchers out for a couple of years to all of the the metal favorites in every sport. So you there there'll be you get information on you know the people that are expected to be in the hunt for these events. Um, but you still need to supplement that with your own research. And and like I said, even though there is a language barrier, Google is still undefeated. Um, and ski jumping, for example, my my weekly routine for for ski jumping right now in the midst of the season is on like Tuesday. I sit for five or six hours. I Google each name of every World Cup ski jumper. I put it into Google News, uh, see what pops up. For the most part, the articles are in Polish because Poland is the, the nation that is just the craziest about ski jumping. Run them through Google Translate and uh, make sense of what the what the newest news is in the ski jumping world uh, based off based off that. And that's how I, you keep a show fresh and you keep it interesting and you can see what people are talking about. Um, in this day and age, I think uh, it's it's. There's never an excuse to not be well prepared just because there is so much out there online and available. I, I that's what when I hear like, you know, old reels from old Olympics in the seventies or eighties, I'm always amazed by those broadcasters because, you know, there there weren't those resources out there. So the the fact that they were able to put together uh coherent, interesting stories blows my mind because they had to do it the old fashioned way. So when you're preparing for each individual athlete. Do you make index cards for everybody? Do you have charts that you put together? What's your method of quickly referencing that information yeah. that you find with so many contestants? So it really changes sport to sport. So um, ski jumping, for example, which I'm doing a lot of right now, because the people go one at a time, I have found the best way to put it together and organize it to allow me to have the flow during the show is I have a, a big Word doc at this point is probably about 260 pages long, um, where it's just one athlete per page. And then these are all the athletes who've competed in the last like three years in the World Cup that I have a page for. And uh, I'll print that document out each week. And then when I get the start list, uh, I, I stack it in order. So whoever's jumping first, I put it at the top of my list all the way down to whoever's jumping 50th, I'll put it at the bottom of the list. And then I just flip through one at a time. And that helps me stay on track and uh, keeps me from having to page through too many things and, and go crazy. So that's similar to index cards, but I found I like to put a lot of quotes and news in, so an index card wasn't big enough and a Word doc uh, ends up working out better for me. Um, 
you know. What happens if a situation, which I'm sure is not that uncommon, where they make a mistake in the order or they put somebody um, put somebody out of order? Do so, you have to, like, frantically wh- search to find them, or how do you handle that? Yeah, I think um, it's the fun of a live broadcast, right? So for the most part, I have to say that, that they're generally pretty organized and go in the order they're supposed to. But there's a time where if someone has an equipment issue or something, they might get skipped in the order and come back to them. And then you just kind of realize, okay, uh, this was supposed to be Constantine Schmidt's spot. Uh, as soon as we get an update, we'll let you know what's going on and uh, move on to the next one. Um, you just got to be on your toes for something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I found that that was, it's still even there. If it's just one person out of order, it would be easier to flip in the system that, that works for me with, with that sport, with the word doc. But it, again, it changes sport to sport. For track and field, I've found that I have the most success if I just go in order of like, okay, who's run the, the fastest time in this event? And I work down that way. So I know where the favorites are going to be at the top of my notes. Uh, you know, for football or basketball or any of those sports, I still go the traditional chart route um uh so so it it really does vary uh, event to event so right now just doing uh, a multitude of freelance jobs and they're certainly some very high profile gigs but i'm sure eventually you'd like something a little bit more stable what are your long-term goals being so young and so accomplished in the industry yeah i i I really do like where i'm at and what i'm doing now and the, the Positive of freelance, of course, is the flexibility of being able to do different things and everything stays fresh and you, you see a lot of different sports, you work with different people. So I, I have enjoyed that. But of course, there is the um, downside of not having the, the security that you have when it comes to a contract or things like that. So I think, you know, my ultimate goal would be to, you know, end up with full time contracted work with with the broadcast network. But I'd love it to be a role that allows me to still do a lot of different sports because I, I really do enjoy uh, the challenge of doing a lot of different events. And I enjoy that it, it keeps things fresh. Like it's fun to do uh, ski jumping on a Saturday and then go do uh, a basketball game on a Wednesday and a hockey game on a Friday. Like this past week I did a basketball game on uh, Sunday. I did a hockey game on Tuesday. I did a NBC hockey game out at Notre Dame on Friday and I did a ski jumping show on Sunday, you know, so it, it stays, um, you stay fresh, you stay on top of things. I, uh, I, I just really enjoy that. So I want to backtrack to something that you were talking about earlier. You mentioned that I think it was you got engaged or married right out of college. Yep. And that's a, that's a hectic time, especially yeah. for a sportscaster when you're usually not making very much money and a, a yeah. lot of odds are stacked against you yeah. as far as being successful. Uh, you have a child on the way. You're still, I, I'm assuming, happily married. And yes. I guess what is the keys that have worked for you to maintaining a family life? Uh, I mean, my, my wife is a rock star, which, which certainly helps. Um, you know, she's been really supportive and flexible knowing the fact that I, Sometimes we'll be away and sometimes we'll be having to, you know, call three shows on a Saturday at Bo- in Boston, which means that when her and her friends are going out and doing something, I'm not always going to be there. But, um, yeah, we, we, we have that nice balance. I think I've tried to make sure that when I'm home, I'm home. Like if I if she when she, when I'm not on the road and I don't have a game, when she goes to work, that's when I try to do all of my prep work. So that when she comes home, I can be home. I can put that stuff away and 
can be present as much as possible. I think that's important. Um, I think we always try to make sure that when we do have time, like if I get a spare weekend or a weekend day that, that, um, I don't have anything, we try to make a plan and do something and make the most of it. Um, so, the, so that's, that's, I think what's been, been valuable in that regard. And it's, it's, it's honestly been also a huge, uh, bolster in my career to have that support. Uh, you know, I feel fortunate. She's always had a really good full-time job that has carried the health insurance. So it allows me the freedom to keep pursuing these freelance roles because I don't have to worry so much about what happens if I, uh, get into an accident or break a leg or get sick because I know I'm covered by her insurance. Um, obviously with the, the, the baby on the way, there's going to be even more self-sacrifice that we're each going to have to make. Um, but we're, we're super excited for that. You know, you mentioned that by the time this podcast is actually released, uh, very likely that child will already be here. Uh, how do you expect that to change the way that you pursue your career uh, having another member of the family? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to have to change a number of things. Most directly, I think it will change my uh, preparation routine. You know, I think uh, I'll obviously try to do a little bit less prep during the course of a morning or things like the, what we've kind of thought about now is uh, once we start daycare, I'll probably try to take care of uh, our, our daughter in, in the morning, at least until 10 or 11 most days, um, just so that we don't have to put our uh, baby in daycare, you know, for eight or 10 hours a day. We'd love to make it have a little more one on one time. So I think I'll I'll shift my preparation later, like I'll do some prep in the middle of the the day while kids at daycare and I'll do some prep at nighttime after the baby's asleep or things like that. But I think I'll try to keep my mornings blocked out as much as possible for, for that. Um, you know, on, on top of that, I think, uh, um, you know, there's, you, you all, you have to balance, you know, what gig, the, that pursuit of a gig. I, I, I think like at this point until now in my career, I've always just, tried to fill my schedule as much as possible, do as many games as I can. You know, at some point I've done up to three or I've done 300 games in a year at, at, at one of these years out of school. So I think I'll probably be trying to cut back on that a little bit because you do the balance. Like, sure, if you could go make a hundred bucks doing this game X, that's great. But at the same time, like if as long as I'm still, you know, getting work that helps put food on the table and things, I think, I'll make the decision from time to time, like, okay, like, yes, a hundred bucks is a hundred bucks and that's nice. But also, uh, you know, time at home with the family is valuable and you can't put a tag on that, you know. How do you handle like tax return time as a freelancer? Cause I'm going to have that coming up for the very first time here, uh, in a couple months. I'm just curious, what are the <laughs> going through that? What are the landmines I should uh, anticipate? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's been crazy right now. It's actually not going to be too bad this time around because, uh, everything will be, uh, the way I've gotten paid this year with who I've worked for, everything will be considered paid in the state of Massachusetts, which is nice because I'll only have to file state taxes in one state. Um, there have been years where I've had to file state taxes in like five or six different states and that gets pretty crazy. Uh, the biggest thing I wish I knew coming out of college and that I think should be brought on the broadcast curriculum everywhere is just like a, something that could be very valuable to learn is like tax business as a freelancer. Because uh, the first year out of school, I didn't realize that, you know, because I was getting paid 
sometimes off a 1099 um, uh, where they weren't taking taxes out up front. uh, All of a sudden it got to tax time. And not only did I owe a lot of taxes, but I owed penalties because I hadn't paid quarterly taxes, which is something that uh, if you're uh, getting paid without the taxes coming out, getting paid as an independent contractor, you actually have to pay quarterly taxes. So that was the first, we learned that the first year the hard way by having to pay some penalties. And since then we've been, uh, much better about, you know, paying our quarterly taxes and those types of things. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing is you just make sure you save a little bit more of every paycheck because when you're getting paid as an independent contractor, uh, not all of that money is yours. The government's got its hands in a lot of it. So I always tried to have a separate account where I just kept, you know, say 25 or 30 percent of the paycheck, knowing that that was eventually going to be like the tax money that I had to pay down the road. What are your broadcast horror stories that stick out in your mind where <sighs> something went horribly wrong that you can laugh at now that uh, was somewhat mortifying at the time? Yeah, you know, I should have should have brainstormed this a little bit more before uh, before coming on. I mean, I, I ha- I've had, you know, games where I've been horribly sick and had to, you know, call the game where it sounds like my nose is plugged up, plugged up the wazoo and I'm losing my voice halfway through and running to the restroom as, as, uh, at every commercial break or things like that. I guess I would say to me, you wouldn't know it if you were watching, but to me, the biggest horror story I have over the last few years, just because of the sheer pain I was in was, uh, one of those games where I was so sick. I was drinking so many fluids. Uh, I did Penn versus Columbia, at Franklin Field, which is the oldest football facility in America at the University of Pennsylvania. This was uh, three years ago. And it's, Franklin Field is an awesome venue. It's, it's really cool. But because it is the oldest field in college football, it's maybe lacking a little bit in terms of press facilities. So our, um, our TV booth was up, you know, kind of hanging off the second deck and there's no bathroom anywhere nearby. Uh, we, so obviously the commercial breaks weren't long enough to go down three flights of stairs into the hallway, wait with the crowd and still go to the bathroom as well. Uh, and the amount of tea and water I was drinking, uh, we got back from halftime. I had run to the facilities during the, um, during the break, but we start the second half and literally by about three minutes into half two, I already had to pee. And it was one of those things where the game just kept on going and going and going. We finally got to the, final minute of the fourth quarter and it was a 30 point game. So you expect, okay, we're rolling here. Player gets injured. They have to bring the stretcher, like a stretcher out. And <laughs> uh, they really he ended up being okay, which is why I can laugh about it. Now he ended up walking off the field, but for a while they brought the stretcher out. The game was held for maybe another like eight or nine minutes. Uh, and those were the eight or nine most agonizing minutes of my life. Uh, so, so I think my, what I, what I learned from that is we are always looking for learnings here is, uh, go cough drops more often than, uh, than the beverage if you, if you can, because, uh, you, then, then you don't get yourself into those types of situations. But I've also learned whenever you see a bathroom and you have the opportunity, go, go for it around a broadcast because you, you never know when you're going to be stuck in a situation like that. Have you read Joe Buck's book? I have not yet read Joe Buck's book. I actually just recently read, which is one of my, he was one of my broadcast idols, but I hadn't had the book until now. Uh, Harry Callis, there was a book written right after Harry Callis, the former Phillies broadcaster, uh, had passed away. And it's just all these amazing um, anecdotes and stories from people who knew and loved Harry Callis, which I found great. But the Buck book's definitely on the list because I've heard it's, I've heard it's great. And I am 
totally on Team Buck that I think he's one of the best and, and most underrated broadcasters in the country because I think he does exactly what you're supposed to in TV, which is provide those proper captions and then get out of the way. He's, he's the best in the business when it comes to letting the, letting the crowd take over in big moments. Well, the reason I ask is because I just got it. I haven't read all of it yet, but in the first probably 10, 15 pages, he tells a story where he was peeing in a trash can during a Brett Favre <laughs> touchdown pass, which reminded me very much of that situation. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh the, the I think we all have those those uh bladder horror stories at some point in our career for sure. Who are your maybe that's a new segment we need to start bladder <laughs> yeah. horror stories. But, yes. Um, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to when you have a night off and you can just yeah. tune into a game? Yeah, uh, so I love Mike Tirico. Um, I've loved Mike Tirico from the time I was young, um, and it's only my love for him has only grown as I've become uh, more and more of a broadcaster and gotten chances to meet him and things like that. I think he is the best at retaining information and knowing the situation of when to drop it in. I think uh, Mike has a nugget for every player who plays in any game, be it football or basketball or anything else that he does. Uh, like I said earlier, he has that amazing grasp of the rules. So he is perfectly prepared for every situation. And I'm a big uh, believer of, you know, like when I'm watching a game, I want to learn something when I'm watching the game as well. And so whenever I watch a game that Mike does, um, I feel like I really learn a ton, and, and I think he's the best at, at just having the, the retention to, to remember all of his prep and know when it's a good time to use it. Um, yeah, I love Sean McDonough. I think he's uh, just so funny, and his uh, you know the way he deadpans is, is great. Uh, um, plus, I love his enthusiasm as well. Um, so I think Sean McDonough doing college football is my uh, my choice for a college football broadcast if I can. Um, you know, on a on a more local level, um, you know, in Boston, when he was the, the Bruins guy, is now out doing uh, TV for the Las Vegas uh, Knights. But I thought Dave Gosher was one of the best hockey radio guys I've ever heard. He was amazing on radio. He was great on TV as well. But I was bummed, happy for him, but bummed for uh, myself as a listener when he when he left to go uh, go to Las Vegas. Because even though I'm not a Bruins fan, I would listen to Bruins games in the car just because I thought he was so phenomenal at hockey radio, which in my opinion is one of the, if not the hardest thing to do in broadcasting, the, the, the pace of an NHL hockey game to be able to do that on radio takes uh, some just master skills. Have you done, you've done some hockey before if I, as I read it, right? Yeah, yeah I do. I do a lot of hockey. Uh, so when you live in Boston, you, you, you kind of have to, but I, I love college hockey. I just actually, uh, I was, as the time of recording this, I was uh, in South Bend a few days ago to do a NBCSN hockey game, Notre Dame versus Minnesota. Um, so I, I love hockey. I think I think it's a great sport to call on television because um, it's the closest thing, in my opinion, to to radio on TV because you know the pace of it and the fact that you can't recognize the players without because they have helmets on means that you're identifying almost every player touches the puck. I almost say a hockey TV call is a lot like a hockey radio call, except for that you scrap out the location because you can see where the puck is, but you still identify other things. And I think it's, it's got so much ebbing and flowing energy that I love the peaks and valleys of a game like that as well. Uh, and speaking of broadcasts, I love to listen to. I think nobody, nobody snaps your head back to the television better than Doc Emmerich. Uh, you can be, you know, half watching a hockey game and, 
you know, puttering away on your computer and you hear him go and drive and all of a sudden your your head snaps back to the TV because you know that uh, something big is going on. Uh, so I, I, I love that part of a hockey broadcast for sure. Yeah, since moving to Minnesota where they call themselves <laughs> the state of hockey. I haven't done one yet, but I anticipate in the next probably month or so I'm going to have some hockey opportunities. Yeah, and I don't, yeah, I've, I've done it once good. and it's, yeah. I don't think it was a total train wreck, but it's been no. a while. So it's, uh, I'm excited it for fun. it. It's fun. The number one thing I would say if you're doing hockey, you know, it's important to have a good grasp on names and numbers going in, but there are some sports that are slow enough where you you have the ability to look down at your chart from time to time. Hockey is so fast that if you don't have those names and numbers dialed in by the time the game starts, you are in serious, serious trouble. That's the sport, I think, of all sports that requires the most memorization beforehand. All right. Well, that is just about all I have. I should start asking people, what do you, anything you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? No, I, 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 I'm really glad I had a chance to chat with you today. I'm glad that uh, you are now uh, working in radio uh, full time, not, uh, not yet opening the store for flooring. But if I ever have a flooring question, I know where to go because I feel like you're probably <laughs> the, uh, the expert there now. Um, yeah, it's a great business. It's a fun business. Uh, and if I could, you know, give a little bit of parting advice, I would say the, the number one thing uh, that I tell a young broadcaster is just to, to say yes to any sport. If someone asks you if you've done X sport, and even if you haven't, say that you have. You can learn it. Um, the fundamentals of play-by-play -play are the same no matter the sport. And at the end of the day, like, you never know what door that will open. Like, if you told me five years ago when I was a senior at Syracuse that I'd be making a substantial portion of my income calling – you know, ski jumping and sports like that, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but I, it's, it's been a ton of fun. And there are so many interesting athletes in all those sports as well. And then that opens the doors for you to get chances to, to do some of the other things that you want to do as well. Uh, so, so the more sports you can do, uh, the more opportunities you can create, the better. You know, I, that, I'm going to keep you here just another minute because yeah. I had a thought covering those Olympic sports at really high levels where you have researchers and information and stuff. Uh, is one thing, but so I did swimming and diving here in Minnesota with about three days notice. Yep. And there's no information out there on high school swimmers and divers. How do you, how do you do a good job with limited information on individual athletes yep. in those situations? Have you yeah. stumbled across that? Yeah, I, I've done some, you know, like high school track meets and things like that as well, and college track meets where. You know, at most, you might be able to find some time. So if, if it's the track and field world, I know you can find, like, there's a website called athletic.net where you can generally grind out some high school times and PRs and things like that. But, you know, if you're stuck with basically just getting the, the heat sheets and seeing who's swimming and going, then you just you really focus on the basics of it. The people who are tuning in to a meet like that obviously are there because it's something they care about. So just make it about that. Make each heat be a big story, um, you know, sports like swimming or track or things like that. The people who are really watching, the diehards, they want to know split time. So where you maybe would like to fill with the story, instead fill with the split time or, uh, um, you know, keep tabs on was this lap faster than the last one, you know, that, that type of stuff. Um, and just try to make it as interesting as you can with the limited information you have. Um, but, yeah, if, if you got to rip and read and do it without – any stories then I said in a sport where there's a clock, then the time is the big, the big, uh, is the story at the end of the day. 
How would someone reach out to you if they chose to do so? Uh, you can email me. Uh, you can see me on Twitter at Bill Spaulding. Uh, um, like I said, email me at BillSpaulding11 at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, you can find me on my website as well. You can reach out to me that way. Happy to uh, talk to anybody. I love uh, love giving feedback and critiques. Happy to listen. Uh, so, yeah, uh, happy to hear from anybody who's interested. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. Remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is really appreciated, and it helps make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the pod. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.